So the plan is what? Assalamu alaikum. Alhamdulillahi wahdahu wa salatu wa salam ala man la nabi ba'adahu nabiyuna muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa anna ma'ahum ila yawmiddin ashadu an la ilaha illa allahu wahdahu la sharika lah wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh uh, let's start our uh, next session, inshallah. It's the keynote speech. It is the main talk of the conference in a sense. This sets the, properly the foundation and the background and sets the scene, uh, striking the balance into the millennium. So I would like to very briefly introduce uh, Sheikh Bilal Phillips. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody knows him already anyway, but it's just for the sake of completion. And there are some new people here. I mean, Sheikh Bilal uh, graduated from the College of Usuluddin in 1980 from the University of Medina. So since that time till now, he has been involved in acquiring knowledge and passing on knowledge and gaining experience in the field of da'wah and benefiting everyone else, inshallah, whom he comes across. Then he did a master's uh, from the University of Riyadh in Islamic theology in Aqidah in 1985. Following on from there, while continuing other works and traveling around the globe, doing talks in various parts of the world and so forth, overseeing school projects to you know, da'wah organizations and so forth. He also completed a PhD in uh, exorcism. And you know, the book is available outside, and you can ask him for his details. That was from the University of Wales in 1994. And uh, he has also, he's also director of the Department of Foreign Literature in an organization or a setup called Darul Fatah in Dubai. And he also teaches, currently teaches at the uni American University in Dubai. And uh, finally, of course, he's also director of the Da'wah of Islamic Information Center in Dubai as well. So he's always very busy and always traveling around and always participating in gaining knowledge and promoting that knowledge to the public. And one of the reasons why we always favor Dr. Bilal in almost all our events, if you like, is because of the many books that he has written in English, which is at our level or, you know, a simple, easy-to-read level. So once you have heard him speak, inshallah, you can, of course access him anytime you like, but do make a point of trying to figure out which one are his books in the bookshops, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. I'll now hand you over to uh, Sheikh Bilal for his talk, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله. Indeed, all praise is due to Allah, and as such, we should praise Him, seek His help, seek refuge in Him from the evil which is within ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds. For whomsoever Allah has guided, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray, none can guide. And I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, 
and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the last messenger of Allah. As was introduced, the topic of this session is related to the issues of the millennium. The millennium which the societies of the West are very much focused on now. There's so many activities, uh, all using this term millennium. And as such, Muslims in the West, as well as Muslims in the East, find themselves caught up in one way or another in this process. We know there's the millennium uh, stadium which they're building and they're debating whether it should have a section only for Christians or it should be a mixture of Christians and Buddhists and Muslims, etc. You know, and Muslims are considering to participate in it and these type of things. Uh, it is very important for us to understand uh, what, is, what should our position be with regards to the millennium. First and foremost, important to understand that the term millennium comes from the Latin uh, millenarius, which means 1,000. And it's taken, the whole basis of it is taken from a verse in Revelations, the Revelations of John, right, in the Bible, where this individual referred to as John, and, and Allah knows who he was. Even the Christian scholars themselves really don't know who this John was, though some people, ignorant Christians, think that it was you know, one of the disciples of, of Jesus. But in, the Christian scholars themselves say they really don't know who he was. Uh, beyond saying that he was the same person who wrote the gospel according to John. Anyway, in these revelations, revelations represents a, a series of dreams that this individual had. In the, in the 20th uh, chapter, verse 4, we find the description of the dragon, which is a term used in reference to Satan, who is bound in chains and thrown into a bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And in that period, the chosen martyrs of Christendom, Christian martyrs, etc., will be resurrected. And Jesus will come, and Jesus will rule the earth over that period of a thousand years. After that period, some corruption will come back, and then the resurrection, final resurrection and judgment will begin. So what we're talking about is basically the millennium represents the thousand year period in which Jesus and Christian martyrs will rule the establishment of the kingdom of God, as referring to the kingdom of Jesus, really. You know, on the earth, he will rule for this period of 1,000 years, and Christians will enjoy uh, the religion of Christianity being spread all over the earth, you know, and people submitting to the rule of Jesus in the name of the Christian doctrines, etc. So, what we're talking about is a belief that God was born 2,000 years ago. Right? This, is, this is the essence of it. If you break it down into very basic terms, we're talking about the belief that God was born 2,000 years ago, that He died on a cross, 
and that he would come back and rule this earth for a thousand years along with the Christian martyrs. Now, this puts the concept of the millennium in the same category as Christmas. The same way that a Muslim is not allowed to celebrate Christmas, and we should be clear about it, that Muslims are not allowed to participate in any way in Christmas celebrations. Why? Because the foundation of it is the belief that God was born on Christmas Day, which is in total opposition to the belief that Islam has with regards to God. So Muslims are forbidden. It is haram for Muslims to be involved in any way in Christmas celebrations, which includes even saying, Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. That is taking part in the celebration. And we should have no hesitation in educating our families and our children, etc., that they should not participate in this thing. In order to make it even more clear in the minds of the children, and I'm focusing on Christmas here, though we said we're speaking about the millennium, because as I said, it's all the same. But Christmas is something you're facing every year, so it's good for you to be clear on the issues concerning it. That if you need to explain, because some people like to say, well, we don't really believe in Christmas, but you know these Christian neighbors and friends of ours, they wish us, you know, happy Eid, when we have Eid, you know, Eid al-Fitr, Eid al-Adha, they greet us on Eid, though they don't believe in it. You know, and this is a part of neighborliness and friendliness, right? So in the same way they do it, you know, we would like to show a similar kind of uh, friendliness to them. So we greet them, Happy Christmas. Though we don't believe in it. We don't believe this at all. But the point is, what we have to consider, just to bring it down to the most basic and, and clear terms, is that if somebody came to you, someone who was a Satan worshiper, and you have a lot of them around, Satan worshippers, if he came to you and he said to you, Happy Satan's Day, are you going to respond back to him, Happy Satan's Day to you, simply because he's your friend, your neighbor, etc.? No. You're going to think Many times, not one time, many times before you would say happy Satan's day back to you. Why? Because this is evil. This is evil. Happy Satan's day is evil. So when you need to explain to your Christian friends, you know, why you can't say, as the Christian himself, if a, if a Satan worshiper came to him and said to him happy Satan's day, he wouldn't say happy Satan's day back to him. For us, it is the same thing. Because if the 25th of December wasn't the day in which Jesus was born, this was not a day taught by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then who do you think taught it? Satan. The 25th of December is in fact Satan's day. 
That's the bottom line. I mean, you don't necessarily want to make da'wah to Christians by telling them the 25th of December is Satan's Day. But I'm saying for your own understanding, for your own clarity, to, to really put it in the right context, this is what you have to understand. Really, 25th of December is Satan's Day. And that's why you can't say Happy Christmas. Because you're saying Happy Satan's Day. In the same way, when we look at the millennium, the concept of the millennium, this is, is, is what is at the foundation of it. The concept is a satanic concept. It is satanic. It's not Islamic. Because we don't believe that God was born 2,000 years ago. So if it's not Islamic, then it must be satanic. If it invites people to the belief that God became a man, he walked this earth, and he's coming back to rule this earth, this man, known as Jesus Christ, who we believe was a prophet of God, if the teaching of the millennium invites people to this, then it is satanic. So the millennium celebration, with regards to the Islamic perspective, is that it is fundamentally a satanic celebration. It is satanic. And you can see it actually, in the way that it is being promoted now, even the religious or Christian aspects of it are gone. It is crass materialism. It's being used to sell, to, to rent, to, to, to promote all kinds of, uh, you know, commercialism, all kinds of goods, products, etc., etc. It is not in any way really religious in practice. But the essence of the thought, the foundation of it, is the idea that the end of the world is coming. This is what the millennium represents. Remember, the end of the world. The, the coming of Jesus. That's the end of the world in Christian thought. Jesus will come and rule. There's resurrection taking place. Resurrection of the Christian martyrs. And rule. It's the end of a phase of the world. So, from the Islamic perspective, this is all false teachings. It is satanic. It has no basis in Islamic teachings. And as such, Muslims cannot have any part and parcel of it. We cannot say we're going to take part in this millennium dome. We're going to take this little part and try to give da'wah on that day or in that dome. Because to do so, it, it means to accept the concept of the millennium. It means we're becoming a part of it. It's like, you know, you're in your office where you work, they're having a Christmas party. Right? So you're going to go to the Christmas party and try to give da'wah. No. What is involved in the Christmas party? This is not an environment to give da'wah. So similarly, the Millennium Dome, even if they invite Muslims to come and take part, you know, you can have a little booth beside the Hindus and the, you know, Buddhists and everybody else. Right? No, we should say no thanks. No thank you. Because we, in doing so, have accepted the foundation, you know, of uh, the Millennium concept as being something that we can share in that we can participate in, whereas in fact, we cannot. What you notice when you, when you look at the history, 
is that the millennium, at the, at the turn of the century, you find that uh, the century, that is the 19th century, when it ended going into the 20th century, uh, you found a lot of groups that appeared based on this idea of the millennium, the ending, you know, ending of the world. You find all the, all the major uh, sects that we know which are very active amongst Christianity now, like the Seven Days Adventists, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons. All of these are uh, millenarian cults. They all came out having the same idea of the millennium, the ending of the world, and the coming of Jesus, this type of thing. And in fact, if you go back even further in history, you find that the Crusades, the Crusades began with the end of the first millennium. The first thousand years, they began in 1071. You know. And the idea of the ending of the world and the coming of Jesus, that was a motivating factor in the call to the Crusades, the attacking of the Muslim world. And when we come to, to today, with the end of this century, the, what, we, what we can expect, what can we expect? We can expect that the crusading spirit will be revived and there will be a major attack against Islam as we can fi- feel it building up towards the end of this century. When you look at the number of attacks on uh, Muslim communities, you see them increasing. It's building towards a crucial point. For Muslims, we have expectations for the future. But they're not bound to the millennium concept. We have information which is clear information, not like the revelations of John, you know, which are a lot of garbled kind of information, you know, talking about the horsemen. And, you know, if you read this thing, it's like somebody was hallucinating. Maybe John was taking some kind of, you know, hallucinatory drugs or something, you know. I mean, when we read about the future in terms of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the, the things to come that bode the end of the world, we find them in very clear terms. The Prophet Muhammad prophesied for us that at the beginning or the end of every hundred years, Allah would send from among Muslims a mujaddid, one who would renew the religion for them, revive that religion at the ending or the beginning of every hundred years. He also told us that the Mahdi would come towards the end of time and what the signs of what the Mahdi would be, they have been made clear to us. I mean, though we have had people, you know, over the centuries claiming that they are the Mahdi, you know, we know they're false because they don't fulfill the criteria which were defined by the Prophet Muhammad in the authentic hadith. We also know that at the end of the time of the Mahdi, that Prophet Isa would come, the Jal would arise, the Antichrist, and Prophet Isa would come would defeat him, you know. And at the end of defeating him, then the, the Ya'juj and Ma'juj, the Gog and the Magog, would uh, be released and they would come and Prophet Isa and his, the followers would have to seek refuge from them in fortresses. They would have to hide out from them because no one can stop them. The devastation that they would cause over the earth. 
And that Prophet Isa would pray. And Allah would send a worm-like animal in, in the backs of the necks of the Ya'juj and Ma'juj and kill them overnight. And after that, the, when the Islamic rule is again established, uh, towards the end of that rule, Allah will send a wind which will take the souls of the believers. None will be left on the earth, you know, except for those who disbelieve. The name of Allah will not be mentioned anymore and Qiyamah will begin. The trumpet will be blown and Qiyamah, the world will end and the Qiyamah would begin. These principles in terms of expectation for the future, you know, have been clearly defined for us. We don't have to speculate about them. Of course, we have a lot of people who like to speculate. They like to go into issues of, you know, Dajjal, well really, when the Prophet ﷺ said Dajjal had one eye, you know, he was blind in one eye, A'war, they will say, well, it means he has one eye, it means it's the television. You know, it's that one big eye looking at you, right? <laughs> well, you have people go through all, they'll give whole lectures on how the television is Dajjal. No. We don't need to go there. The descriptions that the Prophet ﷺ gave us for Dajjal, for the Mahdi, for the Mujaddid, for the Gog and the Magog, these descriptions are clear. When they happen, when they come, we will know them. We won't have to be speculating, you know, is it or isn't it? No. They will be known. So, the future, the expectations that Muslims have is, are clear. We know what to expect. The end of this century, uh, this century, we can't, people could say, could say, well, okay, now, you know, 1999 is coming up, so the year 2000 is coming. So 2000 has a significance in that it must be the beginning of the new century. But hey, when the Prophet Muhammad said at the beginning of every century, was he talking about the Gregorian century? No. He wasn't talking about that. Actually, if you go to try to figure out, well, which century was he talking about? It becomes complicated. We just believe with every century, Allah will send a mujaddid. We don't even have to get into the day when he's going to come. Exactly when that day is. We don't need to get into it. It's just... Prophet Muhammad has informed us. Why has he informed us that? He's informed us not that we are going to go looking out and trying to figure out, you know, exactly who the Mujaddid is. He has told us that to inform us that the religion will be preserved until the last day. This is the point. That the religion will not be lost. Though, as is the normal process, you know, after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, as time passes, you know, people start to stray away from the teachings. They get farther and farther away and different uh, innovations and things kind creep in. And so the clarity of what Islam is becomes clouded, but it will be revived. There will be those who will call back to pure Islam throughout all these periods of time. Major individuals as well as minor individuals. So the religion of truth, the religion of Islam will be preserved until the last day. And that is a necessity. It is a necessity if Prophet Muhammad was the prophet to all nations, as Allah described him, that he was sent to the whole of mankind. Then that religion has to be preserved so all of mankind can have access to it. It's a logical consequence. So, when Prophet ﷺ informed us about the 
mujaddid he this was informing us that the religion would be preserved it would be revived and when we look into the 21st century and we look at the position held by western civilization with regards to muslims we have to recognize that is a position of enmity a position which though you will find individuals maybe clinton maybe blair maybe others will you know be glossing over things and say oh no we like muslims we don't have anything against muslims and so on. so you have people expressing certain individuals express this but in practice what is happening you know on a political scale in practice is an out and out attempt to remove islam from influencing the lives of muslim peoples as the governing force in their lives because there is a movement reviving islam people calling back to islam make islam a part of our lives again make islam the source by which we rule ourselves and there's a counter movement to try to stop that we have to recognize that these lines have been drawn this is not something which uh i'm just speculating about this is something which has been clearly stated by key figures in the western establishment political establishment and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us walan walan tarda anka al-yahud wa al-nasara hatta tattabi'a millatahum that the jews and the christians will not be happy with you until you follow their way millatahum what is their way what is their milla their way today is not christianity per se that they're inviting people to christianity the vast majority of what is known as the judeo christian world today western civilization the vast majority their their way is secular democracy that is their way that is what is guiding the guiding principles of their civilization today secular democracy and this is what they're calling to we have to as muslims recognize this don't fool ourselves into thinking that western civil there's a place for us in western civilization no we have something to offer yes but is there a place for us meaning that we can become a part and parcel of it no because the lines are clearly drawn and there is an individual a harvard university professor by the name of samuel p huntington who is one of the advisors to the the administrations uh, governmental administrations of the United States of America political advisor you know specialist in uh, international politics he wrote a statement in a very famous book of his called the clash of civilizations in which he said the underlying problem for the west is not islamic fundamentalism The underlying problem for the west is not islamic fundamentalism. He goes beyond the usual uh media hype, right? The media tends to focus on islamic fundamentalism. 
This is really the problem, Islamic fundamentalism. But Samuel P. Huntington says, no, it's not Islamic fundamentalism. It is Islam. That's what he said. It is Islam. What is he saying? A different civilization whose people are convinced of the superiority of their culture and are obsessed with the inferiority of their power. It's a different civilization. It doesn't match, it doesn't fit in with Western civilization. Its people are convinced of the superiority of their culture. Islam teaches that the proper way by which human beings should be ruled, human society should be ruled, is accordance, in accordance with the laws of Allah. This is what Islam teaches. That Islam is superior because it is from God. So they look at this, they say this is their attitude. The Muslim culture, they have this idea of you know, superiority. They feel their culture is superior to ours. And at the same time, they're obsessed with the inferiority of their power that they don't have the power to implement this. And so there's always this turmoil in the Muslim world. Whether it's Algeria or it is you know, Egypt or it is the Sudan or wherever you go in the Muslim world, there's this turmoil going there. What is that turmoil about? It's the turmoil about trying to rule Muslim countries according to Islam. That's an obsession that the Muslims have. This has been revived by the awareness, the movement which has spread over the Muslim world today where a deeper consciousness of Islam is taking place in the Ummah. There is an awakening. So there is this desire. And then Huntington goes on to say, the problem for Islam is not the CIA. Again, he's clarifying what are the key issues here. Muslims think it's the CIA. Why? The CIA, they're involved in you know, getting into governments, putting up puppet leaders, pulling down those they don't like. You know, yes, they're involved in this kind of thing. You know, affecting governments. They put their contacts in people who they pay off, etc., etc. And they topple governments, the CIA. But Huntington says, no, this is not the problem for Islam. It's not the CIA. Nor is it the U.S. State Department or the U.S. Department of Defense. U.S. Department of Defense meaning what? The military. Yeah, again, we think, yeah, the American army came into Saudi Arabia, you know, astaghfirullah, you know, in the Holy Land and massacred Muslims in Iraq and etc. That seems to be an obvious enemy, an obvious source of harm, etc. The military, American military, but... Huntington says, no, it's not the U.S. Department of Defense. He said, it is the West. It is the West. The problem for Western civilization is Islam. And the problem for Islam is the West. A different civilization whose people are convinced of the universality of their culture. They are convinced, not just the superiority, of the universality of their culture. That meaning everybody is supposed to have this culture. Why? How did they get there? How did they get to thinking that their culture is the universal culture that everybody should be following? They got there through evolutionary thought. Evolutionary thought. They said, 
Our ancestors were monkeys. From those monkey ancestors, you got human beings. And they evolved, you know, through the different stages. Until they reached this period of time, they've been evolving. Who is on the top of that pile, the, the pyramid of evolution? Who? Western civilization. European civilization. That's on the top. Actually, they have pictures. You can see some diagrams which were drawn, you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago when they showed people on the evolutionary tree. There was a white man on the top, you know, and the colored peoples are on different levels below. Right? I mean, they, weren't, they did it quite openly. You know? Now it's no longer in fashion, so these things are kept out of sight. But this is the concept that Western civilization is at the pinnacle of the evolutionary process. Therefore, whatever Western civilization has achieved in terms of its you know, governmental institutions, etc., it must be the best for everybody. This is the idea that they hold. Because everybody is coming, you know, you all and your other civilizations, you Muslims, you Hindus, everybody else, you're all coming to where we are. You know, it's just a matter of time. Right? So, they are convinced of the universality of their culture. Based on the principles of evolution. And, he went on to say, that they believe that they're superior if declining power imposes on them the obligation to impose that culture throughout the world. They feel it their duty to impose secular democracy throughout the world. This is the bottom line. And this is what governs the politics of the United States, Western societies. This is what governs their politics. Why is it they talk about democracy? They speak about democracy, the importance of democracy, etc., etc. But when in Algeria, Islamic forces were going to bring into play or into existence an Islamic government by democratic means, why did they remain silent when the army stepped in? Why? Why? Because... The only acceptable way for them is secular democracy. Not just democracy, but secular democracy. Secular means that it has no connection with religion. The governmental process has no connection with religion. You remove religion from your schools, from education, you know, from economics, from law, from all of the various aspects of the the instruments that make up the society, religion has to be removed from it. That is the fundamental belief. And they will only be happy when that is in place. This is why they back Turkey 100%. They're behind it. Even though the Turkish government is oppressing you know, the Islamic movement, women who want to wear scarves. They want to wear scarves and teach in university or be in any kind of government jobs that is illegal in Turkey people can lose their jobs, they can be jailed if they do this this is oppression this is something in the United States because of the democratic process and the system that they've set up there if a manager in a company fires you because you wore 
a you know cap or you wore a woman wore a hijab they can take that manager to court and he can be made to pay all kinds of fines it's illegal freedom of religion this is enshrined in the American Constitution. But they support Turkey 100%. They don't complain about what Turkey is doing. Why? Because the military element in Turkey promotes secular democracy. Kamal Ataturk was the secular democrat. So you'll see the policy of the West varying according to how Muslim countries will function with relationship to secular democracy. Now, some people may question, hey, what's so wrong with democracy? You know, democracy is a, is a good thing. People, what does democracy mean? It means the, the rule of the people. You know, the people decide what is right and so on and so on. Sounds good. But the reality is that democracy is a philosophy. It is a philosophy which in its essence is opposed to Islamic civilization, Islamic thought, Islamic faith. It's opposed. Why? Because it is built on the principle, first and foremost, that the human mind has the ability, based on its experience, etc., to, to arrive at what in fact is best for human society we can sit down together and we can put our heads together and decide based on our individual experience, history and everything else, we can come to, to what is in fact what is really best for society. Islam teaches this is not true. No. Allah knows what is best for society. This is why the judgment, the rule should be from Allah. Why Allah would say, Why? Why would Allah say, Whoever doesn't judge by what Allah has revealed are disbelievers. This is the only way to go, to judge by what Allah has revealed. They're either disbelievers or they're fasiqun, they are corrupt. You know. Why? Because human beings make laws according to the environment in which they are, the class of society in which that they come from, and so these laws will naturally contain injustices. That's why you find, for example, in the American Constitution, the American Constitution, which was put together back in the 18th century by the best minds, the most liberated minds of America, after they freed themselves from Britain, they put together a constitution, which to them today is like a Bible, like revelation. You can go to Washington and see it encased in glass. People come there on pilgrimages to see the American constitution signed by their, you know, the founders. However, in Article 1, Section 2, entitled the three-fifths compromise, it states there that black men, slaves at the time, were to be counted as three-fifths of a white man. Black men were to be counted as three-fifths of a white man. 
This is the most enlightened minds of the time coming together to determine what was in fact really good for people. Was that really good for people? No. Now, people will say, no, this was racist, it was evil, it was oppressive, but these were the most enlightened minds of that time. Why should we expect, that was the 18th century, why should we expect in the 20th century that the enlightened minds of our time can do any better? still human minds. And human minds will make judgments according to the environment, the climate, the political climate, the social climate that they find themselves in. And this is why you find in Western civilization today that the attitude that the society holds towards homosexuality is one which has changed rapidly over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Has changed rapidly. Legislation has just raced ahead to the point where homosexuals now have a prominent position in society, which cannot be touched. It is considered, you know, political suicide to criticize homosexuals. For anybody seeking political office, for them to create, say, say anything against homosexuals, it's political suicide. They're finished. Written off. Don't even forget this person's name doesn't even exist after that. Finished. How? How did that come about? If you went back 30 years ago and you asked the average Brit on the street, what do you think about homosexuals? What do you think he's going to say? He's going to say homosexuals is evil, bad, sick. You know, they had all kinds of names, pufters and all kinds of names. You don't say these names now, right? Evil. Maybe they'll quote a verse from the Bible saying it's an abomination unto the Lord. You know. But today you ask the average Brit on the street, you know, what do you think about homosexuality? Choice. It's a choice. Yeah. It's, a, it's an alternative lifestyle. This is another name they call it, right? Alternative lifestyles. Recently I just read in the papers about two days ago, this judge in, in Wales... You know, a judge who's making rulings in the courts, everything. They caught him in a men's bathroom in, in an act with another man, right? Policeman had gone in there to use the bathroom, caught him in an act. Then, um, you know, he just was asked, you know, not to do this in public again. And that was it. The person he was involved was 18 years old. It's over 18, so it's not a crime, right? So the point is that the society, and they were talking in the article about how the laws had changed, how before... You know, if you went back five years ago, ten years ago, if they caught a person doing that, then they would take him to court and this guy's life would be ruined. He would be exposed and you know, all kinds of things would happen to him. But today, no. Just, please don't do it in public. You know, a warning. Please don't do it in public. How did this come about? Where did this come from? It came from the principle known as Consenting adults. The principle which is now the governing factor for morality in the society. The principle of consenting adults. Where did this principle come from? Well, once people decided in the West that adultery, fornication, shouldn't be a crime because people started to question why is fornication a crime? Why is adultery a crime? 
Because it says so in the Bible. That's where it came from. The Ten Commandments. This is where the prohibition against fornication and adultery came from. So, once this was removed, you know, with the sexual revolution, right? Then, they had to find a new principle. How are we going to determine what is permissible sexually and what is not? They then had to go to the issue of what? Of consent, first and foremost. Because why do we prohibit rape? Because rape is not with consent. The person is forcing himself on somebody else. Right? Okay. Now, they also prohibit pedophilia. So they said, because they couldn't deal with this idea of adults having sex with kids. So they said, okay, it means they should be adults. So that's why they put together now consenting adults. So whatever takes place between consenting adults, we no longer have the right, government no longer has the right to get involved in. That's their own personal affair. Consenting adults. So, homosexuals started to argue, we are consenting adults. Why are you making a distinction between heterosexual consenting adults and homosexual consenting adults? So they had to say, yeah, really, why? Because in the Bible it says that uh, homosexuality is an abomination. These people should be killed. Why? That's, that's the Bible. That's the Old Testament finished. We have the New Testament and Jesus, you know, ended that anyway. So why are we even keeping it in the law books anymore? So it's taken out. Consenting adults. So what happened is that in this course of about 30 years and less, homosexuality, which was considered to be an illness, a mental illness, you could find it in the uh, psychiatrist Bible. They have a major book which the psychiatrists have a listing of all of the illnesses. You know, it used it was in there as an illness which should be treated by shock treatment. They had drug treatments. They had a variety of different treatments for it. But when you look at the latest edition, you find it's no longer there. Homosexuality is no longer an illness. Finish. In its place, we have a new illness. What is that new illness? Homophobia. Right? That's the new illness. To replace homosexuality, the new illness is homophobia, meaning those people who don't like homosexuals, and they say, now you are sick. You, you don't like a homosexual? You can't stand, you need to go to the psychiatrist, you need re-indoctrination, you need your brain, maybe shock treatment or whatever else. They say, you need to be treated. This is, this is what has taken place. This is where society has reached. And this is the product of the democratic process. This is the product of the democratic process. So, we can say without any hesitation that Muslims cannot involve themselves or cannot feel that they can be involved in this process of Western civilization. We can't. Western civilization is opposed. Its values are opposed. Sweden today, in Sweden, it is not considered illegal. It's not considered a crime for a man to have relations with his mother, with his sister, and with his daughter, as long as they're consenting adults. This is the bottom line, consenting adults. This is where they went. It's just a matter of time before Britain and the rest get there. 
You know, Sweden is more advanced in this corruption. Right? Yeah. Moral corruption. Right? But it's just a matter of time because that's what that principle means. So, unless we are ready to get on that bandwagon that we want to go where they're going, then we have to realize that, hey, we who represent Islamic civilization, our civilization is in opposition to the principles of that civilization. It doesn't mean that the technology, the, 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 the developments which have, been ta- have taken place on a material level, that these have to be rejected. No. These can be utilized. But, they have to be utilized under guidelines. You see, again in the West, this concept of freedom, you know, secular democracy, this idea of freedom of the press, etc. What does it lead to? It leads to the point where you can pick up a newspaper. Now, a newspaper, and you flip it open and it's nakedness. Something which 40, 50 years ago would be considered illegal. If you put a newspaper on the, on the streets with that, you would be arrested. But now it's no longer considered. It's considered normal. It's considered normal. You have channels on the television where you can you know, see open, clear pornography. This is something unthinkable. If you went back 50 years ago and suggested to people, hey, they're going to have channels on the television where you can you know, see what they call blue films or whatever. You know. <laughs> no way. Our society would never allow that. Guess what? It's here. So it's just a matter of time. Their concepts of freedom of, of speech, etc., because of that secular democratic principle, it leaves the society open to all forms of corruption. And the Islamic civilization is opposed to this. Tooth and nail. So, we as Muslims have to recognize that we cannot be a part and parcel of that process. So then, what is in front of us? What is in front of us is to revive Islamic civilization. So that we can meet the challenge which is coming to us in the coming years. In this 21st century coming up, we be able to stand up against that wave, that wave, the wave of Western civilization which has engulfed other civilizations. The Indian, one billion Indians, one billion Chinese, they have been engulfed by Western civilization. Secular democracy is the rule of their countries. This only in, 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 uh, in the Muslim world where you find people you know, calling for the rule of God. It's only in the Muslim world. Nowhere else. So we are the last bastion. If we go, that's it. It's over. And that's why... We have a responsibility to revive the principles of that civilization because the principles of Islamic civilization are principles which any thinking person who stops for a minute, if they come in contact with it in practice, not just in theory, then they will be convinced that it is in fact the truth. Because the falsehood which is being promoted by the society, it's weak. It's only strong because it is so widespread. Everybody is into it, everybody is supporting it, everybody is talking about it, so it seems strong. But really it's weak. When the truth stands forth, it stands forth clear. And it destroys the evil. So it is our responsibility to bring that back to the forefront. To do so, 
we have to challenge the corruption which has developed within the Muslim Ummah today. That corruption wherein people are unable to distinguish between Islamic teachings and tradition. They don't know what is Islam and what isn't Islam. So we find Muslims doing all kinds of things. Practices, you know, like genital mutilation, you know, and all this kind of stuff is attributed to Muslims and to Islam, when in fact this is a part of cultural practices, traditions that exist in the Muslim world today, which cloud over the true teachings of Islam, which are found in the Quran and the Sunnah, as it was understood by the Sahaba and the righteous generations that followed them. This is the basis of Islamic teachings. And this is what we have to get back to. If you want to call it fundamentalism, that's what it is. Getting back to the fundamentals, yeah. Because that is the best way. Prophet ﷺ said, Khairul nas qarni. The best of people, my generation, they're my generation. Then those who follow them, then those who follow them. That is the best of generations. The Islam which they followed is the best Islam to follow. It is the best understanding of Islam. And that is the understanding we have to revive, we have to get back to. And in doing so, we have to confront that huge monster of traditionalism which faces the ummah today. That monster which has created so many evil practices amongst Muslims. So much so that they don't really hardly know what is Islam anymore. Wherein we find Muslims sharing in the practices of the non-Muslims. Like in India where they burn brides regularly. You know, it's a regular feature of, of Indian society that every month, you know, a few women are burnt alive by their husbands and their mothers-in-law. When they, have, when they didn't bring the dowry that they were supposed to bring, then the husband gets mad. And what does he do? He and his mother, they pour gasoline over the woman and they set her on fire. This is a common practice in India. This was known amongst the Hindus. But with Muslims accepting Hindu tradition, where it is commonplace amongst Muslims of India and Pakistan, for example now, that the women are the ones giving the dowry, right? reversing the Islamic teachings, then what can you expect? You can expect that Muslims will also be involved in this thing. And surely they were. There was a report which came in the newspaper in 1998, last year. It said, woman burned to death in Dhaka. A greedy husband burned to death his young wife at Sikpara in the city following a feud over dowry. The police said that Zahir Mia is a Muslim, in name anyway, poured gasoline over the body of his wife Shahnaz, 20 years old, and set her on fire on Sunday. She died in Dhaka Medical Hospital yesterday. This is Muslims involved in this same kind of thing. You'll find Muslims, for example, in Egypt, there was a report, it said, son held for killing mother. In Qina, Egypt, a 22-year-old son beheaded and dismembered his widowed mother when he found out that she had secretly remarried, breaking with the tradition in southern Egypt. Police said here, Salah Ahmed Hassan, 
helped by one of his uncles, forced Samira Salam, 35 years old, his mom was only 35 years old, into the village cemetery in Naqada, a hamlet north of southern, the southern resort of Luxor, where they strangled, beheaded, and dismembered the woman. They said the woman was pregnant. Hassan and Samira's brother were detained for questioning and admitted their crime. How is that? That's something unthinkable. This man kills his mother along with her brother. They conspire together to murder her, cut her head off and chop her body up into pieces. Why? Because the tradition in southern Egypt is that if a woman's husband dies, she does not remarry. That's it. Don't even think about remarrying. That's their tradition. Where did that come from? Does it have anything to do with Islam? No. Prophet Muhammad married women whose husbands died. Um Salama. Her husband died, Prophet Muhammad married her. So obviously, this is in total opposition to Islamic teaching. So where did it come from? It came from the cult of Isis. This is from ancient Egyptian uh, beliefs that this goddess Isis, you know, she, uh, her brother had wanted to, to marry her and she refused and he, he killed her husband and her son. She still refused. Her son came back, Horus came back and killed the guy. And so he, she was held up, you know, this woman who refused to remarry as, you know, she's a, a, an object of worship. It became a part of the tradition in southern Egypt that you don't remarry. There's an article in the paper in April, 9th of April. It said here, a 23-year-old girl in the southern eastern Turkish province of San Liurfa committed suicide with a hand grenade after her father demanded that she marry her cousin. Suicide. Suicide. I mean, this is something we know is haram in Islam. Finished. Here is, you know, this is something common in, 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 in certain places like in, in, uh, in India where people believe that, you know, you, you, when you die, you come back. Right? There's reincarnation. So, you know, if life is a bit rough, things are not working out, kill yourself, you get another chance, right? No problem. So you'll find a lot of suicides there, okay? We understand that because that's their belief. That's how they look at life, right? You can always come back and give another, have another go at it, right? Whereas for us Muslims, we know once you die, there's no coming back. So for a girl to commit suicide, she's 23 years old. She's not just, she's not, it's not ignorance now. She's 23 years old. She commits suicide. Why? Because her father was going to force her to marry her cousin. In Islam, do we have forced marriage? No. Where did this come from? This is culture. This is the tradition that is developed in different parts of the Muslim world. And it leads Muslims into committing all kinds of crimes. We had the case of the, in, in um, Afridi, the case in Pakistan, you know, where this uh, girl from one of the Patan tribes, she married a, a guy who wasn't from the Patans, and you know, what happened? The family got so upset, they claimed that you know, this guy had kidnapped her and they showed that he didn't kidnap her. You know, and they came into the courts. They claimed that she was committing adultery, whatever, and they proved no, she got married. They came into the courts and they shot the guy down in the courts, trying to kill him, paralyzed him. You know, this is the state they reached. This is tribalist 
attitudes which have nothing to do with Islamic teachings at all. So, this is what Muslims are faced with. These kind of practices which they have inherited or they have adopted from the various societies around them, along with a body of tradition. That body of tradition which invites people to worshipping other than Allah, which we should be aware of. That body of tradition is expressed under the name today of Sufism. This is another very dangerous problem which faces the revival of Islam in our times. The ideas which have been promoted by leaders of the Sufi movement, people like Sheikh Nazim and others, you know, Nohamim Keller, others like this, who in our times, they have their writings are coming amongst us, reviving this idea that you can pray through the Prophet Muhammad or pray to the Prophet or pray to saints or pray to others like this. You know, this is shirk. This is something which destroys a person's place in the next life. This is something which we have to be clear about. Allah tells us very clearly in the Quran, "Ud'uni astajib lakum, call on me and I will answer you. Allah says it. Don't call on anybody else. Call on me and I will answer you. And for those who say, well, you know, we are calling on Allah, but we're calling on Allah through Prophet Muhammad So we call on Muhammad and say, please take it to Allah. The point is, Prophet said, "Ad-du'a huwa al-ibadah." What calling is worship? Whoever you call on is that the one who you worship. So you call on Prophet Muhammad No matter what you're saying to him, you are worshiping him. You call on a saint, you are worshiping the saint. So we have to oppose that body of tradition which encourages people to make pilgrimage in the thousands, the multi-thousands to places like Ajmer in India and this type of thing, where the, the, the various you know, people are going to the graves of the so-called saints or to say the Badawi there in, in, in Egypt, you know, where people go there and they pray to the dead. We have to oppose this. We have to bring back the way of the, the Prophet Muhammad and his Sahaba, which, where they understood Islam, that, it, that prayer should only be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the other area that we have to tackle, that we have to face, is that of factionalism. Factionalism is a problem for us on a political level, social level, economic level. It is, it's killing us. Factionalism. Factionalism manifests itself in many different ways. It manifests itself in earlier times as madhabism, Right? where people followed madhabs and were fanatical about their madhabs. You know, my madhab, do or die. You know, this is it. And what did that lead to? People not praying behind other people because they didn't follow the same madhab. People refusing to marry other people because they're not following the same madhab. Where, the, where you had around the Kaaba, when the time for salah came, you had four iqamas. Four different salahs were carried on around the Kaaba. They had different places they called the maqams. You look at any of the old pictures of the Kaaba from the early 1900s, late 1800s, photographs that they have. You'll see around the Kaaba structures, four main structures. They call one maqam. We know maqam Ibrahim, but that's not this. They have this thing they call maqam Hanafi, maqam Hanbali, 
Maqam Shafi'i and Maqam Maliki. What was these maqams for? The Imam, when the time for Salah came, the Maliki Imam would stand up, you know, make his iqamah, Allahu Akbar, and all the Malikis who were making tawaf, they'd go and pray behind him. When he was finished, then the Hanafi Imam would get up. He'd say, Allahu Akbar, and all the Hanafis who were making tawaf, they would come pray behind him. When he's finished, then the Shafi'i, then the Hanbali. This is what went on. So what you had in fact there was four different religions. This is factionalism. Surely this was not from Rasulullah This was not from Rasulullah The madhab that we have ultimately is the madhab of Rasulullah This is the only true madhab. All of what we call madhabs today are the efforts of scholars to understand and to apply the madhab of Rasulullah That's what they were following. If you ask Imam Malik, what madhab were you following? What do you think he's going to say? The Maliki madhab? Think about it. Or Abu Hanifa, what madhab were you following? The Hanafi madhab? <laughs> no way. He's going to say, I'm following the madhab of Rasulullah So that really was what their madhab was. It was the madhab they were trying in their own areas with the knowledge that they had, etc. to try to follow the madhab of Rasulullah and that is the perspective we have to bring it back to. The idea of following scholars as the students of Abu Hanifa, students of Malik, following scholars, this is something legitimate. All the generations, people will always follow scholars. As Allah tells us in the Quran, you know, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask those who know, if you don't know, you must follow the scholars. But you don't follow the scholars blindly. That's the point. You don't follow the scholars blindly. This is why when Imam Malik was asked by some of his students, if a person was to follow a Sahabi, a Sahabi, one of the companions of Rasulullah if the person was to follow the Sahabi in everything he did, would he be on the correct path? Imam Malik said no. I know many of you have heard the quote-unquote hadith, Ashabi ken nujum, that my companions are like stars. Any one of them follow, you follow, you'll be rightly guided. No, this is not authentic. This is fabricated. It's not authentic hadith at all. Imam Malik is telling us the truth here. He said, no. Unless that sahabi was on the right path. Unless the sahabi himself was making the correct decisions. Whatever was correct of his decisions, you follow that, you're on the right path. Whatever was wrong of his decisions, if you know it's wrong and you still follow it, you're on the wrong path. If you don't know, okay. You followed based on the knowledge that you had. But if you know it is wrong and you follow it still, then you are on the wrong path. So, as Imam Malik said, the only one who was free from error in the deen is the one in that grave. Because he was the Imam of Medina. He was referring to the grave of Prophet Muhammad He is the only one who we should follow blindly. Any other human being, we have to judge them according to the knowledge that we have we follow them based on trust, etc. But if information comes to us that, that they were in fact incorrect in a particular ruling, then we need to follow that which is correct as far as we can determine. And factionalism has manifested itself in later times in the movements where we now have different movements, right? Whether these movements you know, are called... Uh, Jamati Islami, or Ikhwan, 
or Salafi, you know, or Ahli Hadith. We have different movements taking different names. Now, these movements, again, if people become fanatical in these movements, then they have fallen into the same trap of the people of the past. These movements are efforts of human beings to try to organize Muslims in trying to follow the Quran and Sunnah and implement it. They're human beings, it means what? That they have made errors, they are not perfect. So, if somebody decides to point out to us some of the errors of Maududi, we shouldn't be jumping up in arms, how dare you? Or if somebody points out the errors of, you know, uh, of Sayyid Qutub, we don't jump up in how dare you? No. Or if somebody points out the errors of Sheikh bin Baz, nobody should point jump at me. How dare you? No. These are human beings. All human beings. All capable of error. We try to follow as best as we can those who we trust. But the point is, ultimately, they were trying to follow Quran and Sunnah. We should also try to follow Quran and Sunnah. We take benefit from them, from their guidance, from their efforts. But ultimately, we should recognize that people will have different opinions. They will follow different movements. As long as what they're calling to is the Quran and Sunnah. In fact, I don't mean just in words, but in fact they're doing something else altogether. But they're, they're trying to do it in fact then we should be prepared to work with them. We should be prepared to work with them. Because ultimately, Muslims have to come together. If they are to have an impact, whether in Britain or whether internationally, they will have to have that impact as an ummah. Not as individuals. Of course, as individuals, we strive as we can. However, ultimately, we strive to work together because, as the Prophet ﷺ said, Yadullah al jamaah Allah's hand is on the jamaah. This is where the blessing is. This is where the strength of the ummah lies. So we should work in the future. What we should see coming for us in the years to come is one, an effort to revive Islam back to its purity, to clear away the corruption that has developed as a result of traditionalism, etc. As well as uh, innovation in the religion through the Sufi channels, etc. And as well as factionalism, which has split up the ranks of those who are calling to Quran and Sunnah, you know, to try to move those things aside to be able to bring ourselves together and to work together in harmony. Recognizing our differences. And Allah knows that these differences, we will have differences until the last day. The Sahaba had differences amongst them, and they were the best of generations. So we cannot expect to have a situation where nobody's going to differ with anybody else. It's not going to happen. Let us be realistic and know what is our responsibility and where we need to work. In summing up, I would just remind us Remind yourselves and myself that the millennium is a satanic affair. We have no part to play in it. It is based on pagan beliefs introduced amongst human beings by Satan.
we should oppose it with wisdom, with best speech, and we should not take part in it. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ourselves be active in promoting Islam in the period to come. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to bring Islam back into focus. To make it a reality in this society and in societies around the world. And as I said, we can only do that if we return to the foundations of Islam. The foundations pure from the corruptions which have spread amongst the ummah today. Which have distorted the image of Islam so much so that the media describe the actions of Muslims in such ways that would make people not want to think about Islam at all. We have to oppose this. We have to call out, let people know what is true Islam. We have to oppose it in our communities, in our societies. And we have to try to work together for the sake of Allah. I hope that the message is clear. And I don't know what our time is for questions. I guess it is uh, virtually not there. Maybe we can take a couple of questions and then shut down. Inshallah. Have we got time for a couple Okay, we'll take two quick questions. Or better take three because three is witr. And then we have to go prepare ourselves for salah. Go ahead.